it's interesting because I think one of the things we'll find and one of the things we find with a lot of these churches that have become very well known for their failures, you hear early on how about all the faithfulness, about all the kind of accountability and honesty and all these things. And then once things start getting big, all those things slowly get brushed to the side and suddenly everything gets narrowed around a single person. Continue this theological discussion in a car or in a jailhouse room of cops. Welcome to Everything Just Changed, a podcast where we envision a post culture war church and equip leaders who just can't even anymore. Have you witnessed abuse of power in the church? Maybe you haven't witnessed abuse of power, but you've seen everyone talking about it online recently and you're wondering why it's getting so much attention. Maybe you're a pastor and you're working really hard to love and lead your church, but you're wondering if the outrage machine will turn its sights on you next. Join us today on Everything Just Changed as I talk with professor and author Kyle Strobel about the use and abuse of power and what it might look like to recover a Christian understanding of power in our time. All right. Well, Kyle Strobel, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. I know Brad and I talked with you about spiritual formation a couple months back and really enjoyed that conversation. I'm really excited for this conversation today because you and I met originally, it, it feels like a lifetime ago, and that's because it was right before COVID shut the world down at a conference around the theme of your book, which you've just kind of re-released recently, The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, Searching for Jesus' Path of Power in a Church that Has Abandoned It. So yeah, that you wrote with Jamin Goggin. So we're going to talk about power today. So thanks so much for being here. Hey, Bryce, man. So good to be with you again. Okay. So I've been reading, studying, thinking about power. It's become such a big topic just culturally in the last couple of months and years. I want to start with a what may might seem like an obvious question, but what what is power? What what are we talking about when we talk about power? I think so much of the time the conversation is around we either ignore the existence of power or you know all power is bad. What, but we don't actually hear it defined. What are we actually talking about when we talk about power? Yeah, you know, at its basis, it's quite simple, which is power is simply the ability to affect reality. And so one's power is directly related to how much of reality one can impact, right? And so a king has more power than a peasant in traditional kind of kind of forms. Now, what's interesting about that is, and there's a couple things I've noticed these days, you know, I think my generation, our generation, we, we often are, are inclined towards one or two things. One would be to follow our parents' generation and just kind of baptize all power as good power, mm-hmm. as long as it's for the right ends. And so if it's for God, or at least in our minds for God, or for ministry, or for whatever reason, we just say, well, power's good. So we should wield it in whatever way we can. And that usually led us to kind of throwing the doors open to the various modes of power, the various tools we might employ in power. If you think about the kind of platform building of what has now become kind of seen as celebrity Christianity. That, that was like a, mm. a baptism of a certain tool of kind of worldly power because it fit an end, right? And so we thought, well, if power's good, we should be able to use these things and advance our power because I'm doing something that is good. The other side, which I'm seeing increasingly, and I want to say that's an error, and mm-hmm. that's an error we need to talk about. The other side's equally an error, though. And the other side wants to say power's bad. Mm-hmm. We just need to get rid of power. We are called to be weak. And, and that's just obviously false, <laughs> biblically. I mean, it's just false. Right, right. Jesus says, my power is made perfect in your yeah. weakness. Yeah. So the goal is never weakness, even though weakness is necessary to receiving power. So the goal is to be a powerful Christian who can affect the kingdom, which is reality. And I think that that second part is really important, is that when we talk about the power to affect reality or power as the ability to affect reality, in the kingdom that gets flipped on its head. 
because now all of the things the world says are powerful are not. And all of the things the world says are kind of weak suddenly are actually potential moments of real power, right? And so this is why I think Mother Teresa can be seen as such a powerful human being. And everyone just kind of recognizes that. Mm-hmm. And and yet, by no kind of worldly standards does it even make sense that, because even in worldly standards, she's powerful. And that's what's kind of interesting, right? I mean, you see this with Jesus, you see this with Paul, like, why is Paul getting to meet with kings? Hmm. <laughs> Right. Even as a prisoner, right. like, like, how is this happening? Well, the kingdom power will prove itself as true power. But the danger, I think, on both sides is an overly simplistic view of power, one that baptizes all power for proper ends and one that just simply thinks we need to get rid of power in general. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That. Uh, so it's it's the, the drive to get rid of all power that seems to be having the cultural moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, and there's just that's just fantasy. I mean, that's just I, I mean, what that would even entail makes right. no sense. Right. Exactly. So, can you, you, you? There's kind of two metaphors that you guys use in the book. You talk about power from above and power mm-hmm. from below, or you know, as in the title, imagery from Revelation, the way of the dragon, the way of the lamb. Unpack what you mean by those two approaches to power. Yeah. So the, the imagery we like in terms of the above and below, the first metaphor you mentioned comes from James 3, 13 and following. And so James lists two forms of kind of power in this world. He said, there's a way from above, which is the way of Jesus. And there's a way from below. And he names the way from below as earthly, unspiritual and demonic. What we've come to know as the world, the flesh and the devil. And so there's these three spheres of evil that are all one power system. And that's, see, this is where we really have to start being honest. We usually aren't very honest with our language. So we'll see, you know, I mean, obviously with the rise and fall of Mars Hill, Driscoll's in the news quite a lot these days. But I mean, and, and he's an easy example, actually, I think an unfortunate one, because whenever we talk about Driscoll, it's too easy to shake our heads and. Um, not look at ourselves and see how tempted right. we are by these things. But there's a reason why he's a good example, for instance. So if you take someone like Driscoll who decides, you know, whether he decided this or his elders or someone around him decides we should cheat the New York Times bestseller list mm-hmm. so that we can get your book out to more people. Now, in one sense, I'm an author. Like, I understand <laughs> yeah. how you could be tempted by it. I understand, like, I could, I could see someone talking to Mark, don't you believe in this book? Yeah, you know, I, I really do. No, I, if, if people could read this, I really think it can make a difference. Well, we have a way. I, I mean, I get that temptation. Yeah. And yet what, what most of us want to say when we see things like that is, you know, ah, that's, that's unfortunate. We might even go so far to say it's wrong. The Bible says it's demonic. And, and that's where we need to recognize that the world, the flesh, and the devil are an integrated system of evil, which is why Jesus calls Peter Satan to his face. And he tells him the reason he called him Satan, the demonic, is because he was setting his mind on the things of man, the flesh. Mm. And so we see in scripture that there's these, these interrelated realities that we can choose between. And the way that Jamin and I like to think about them. So on the one hand, let's take the typical standard vision of power the world has. You have you have power and strength for the sake of control or domination. And again, I, I use the word domination, which has a negative tinge to it, although it's probably not often seen that way, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, power. Well, how's power made? Well, it's in our strengths. So we need to actualize our strengths. Why? So we can control the outcome and so we can dominate. Now, mm-hmm. quite honestly, in the 90s and early 2000s, that vision just was the vision of ministry on offer. Yeah. And that is precisely how we pitch spiritual gifts. Yeah. Spiritual gifts, which our primary text is 1 Corinthians 12, which is an entire book about ministering out of weakness, mm-hmm. we have pitched as a way to never minister in weakness. I mean, there's a deep irony with what spiritual gifts have become, which is power and strength for control and domination, <laughs> which <laughs> is the way of the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? The po- the 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 power of the kingdom is now power found in weakness for the sake of love. 
And it just turns out that that is an entirely different form of power. It's the fromness is different. So it's not from the self and for the self. It's, it's from God. It comes outside of you. So when Jesus, the risen ascended Jesus, tells Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Paul then says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ might tabernacle upon me, or rest upon me, as we usually translate it. Although the word means tabernacle, and that's not an insignificant word biblically. Yeah. But the image is, where's power coming from? Outside of you. Hmm. How do you discover it? By embracing your weakness and in your weakness, embracing Christ so that his power comes to rest upon you. So it's not kind of actualizing power I have as a self for the sake of something. It is receiving by grace the power of God so that I can make a difference in the kingdom and minister in the kingdom for the sake of loving God and loving my neighbor as myself and trusting by faith that that actually is more powerful than what the world has on offer. I, I worry that, I have several worries, one of which is that we simply don't believe Jesus on this stuff. Yeah. Like we just don't think he's telling the truth. Like when Jesus says things like the first will be last and the last will be first, I, I just don't think we buy it. Right. Um, when Jesus says, you know, my powers may perfect your weakness, I just don't think we believe them. I think we think that's false. But also I worry that we're much more interested to target superficial problems. So, and they're problems still. Like we need to say, we need to talk about celebrity culture and the problems it has. That's a problem. That's fine. But it's not the root problem. Hmm. We need to talk about toxic cultures. That is a problem, but it's not the root problem. The deeper problem is even in churches that maybe don't have toxic cultures that aren't obsessed with celebrities, most of them still believe in a worldly power system. And the great fantasy is that we can sow to the world, the flesh, and the devil for the mm -hmm. sake of the kingdom and mm -hmm. reap somehow kingdomly. And that's just what Paul says is clear. God will not be mocked. Mm -hmm. What you sow, you will reap. Yeah. And the fantasy I think that we've bought into with this is that sowing to the flesh just means doing sin, evil things. And we, we neglect that there's actually a way to embrace these things where we have good intentions and we have good ends in mind, but we actually embrace away from below to try to further the kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciated it kind of in the earlier part of the book, earlier, you know, half of the book, it seemed like both you and Jamin were pretty candid about these are, you know, th these are not temptations that are foreign to either of you. I, I uh, resonated a lot with Jamin as a pastor saying, you know, I want to I want to serve people. I want to preach the gospel. I want to see people come to faith. But I'd also really like to be recognized as a as a great pastor or, uh, you know, to have totally. that that status of pastoring the big church. So if I recognize those desires within myself, selfish ambition, a desire for power. What, what do I do with that? Is that, do I repent of that desire? Do I strive to like temper the ill effects of power through, uh, through suffering, through, through experience? Or should I seek a different kind of power? How do I think about that in the moment? Yeah, well, I, th I think, you know, the first thing we have to do is we have to, one, see how deep this goes in us. And I think that's, as you mentioned, you know, in our book, one of the things we try to do is try to highlight the fact that the problem isn't trapped in celebrity culture. The problem is mm -hmm. the human heart, right? As Calvin says, the human heart's a factory of idols. And for those of us who are, who are in ministry, certainly for those, but for all Christians, this is a temptation because everything you do from reading your Bible to using your money to spending your time is entirely built on your view of what is powerful. And so this is an every Christian sort of thing. When you begin to see these things more deeply, and, and as you mentioned, you mentioned um, selfish ambition, you know, the, the two characteristics of the way of the world, the flesh and the devil from James three is selfish ambition and jealousy. Mm -hmm. And that really hit us hard. Um, 
as Marva Dawn told us when we interviewed her for the book, if you want to find selfish ambition and jealousy, just go to a pastor's conference. <laughs> and that, yeah. you know, yeah. and, 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 or I would just add an academic conference, quite honestly, right? I mean, the whole academy is built on selfish ambition and jealousy. I mean, that's the point of it in many ways. Is there a non-selfish ambition? I mean, I, uh, pastors <laughs> can couch this in language of, you know, we want to have, we want to be ambitious for Jesus. We want to see our city come to faith. We want to, uh, you know, we want we want to see the kingdom expand in this place, and that's going to happen as we grow. And, uh, um, and that can certainly be, you know, just couching our am, our selfish ambition in sort of kingdom <laughs> language, right? Totally. But is there a non selfish ambition? In one sense, I think there probably is. But the way you kind of recognize it is if it truly has nothing to do with you. Hmm. So, do you rejoice in the revival that has exploded in someone else's church? Right. Yeah. <laughs> do you do you rejoice that um, someone received a huge financial gift at another church in town? And <laughs> praise be to God because yeah. his, you know, you know, like that's the kind of questions I think with that we really need to start asking. Yeah. But when we see these things, we need to we need to kind of be willing to take a bit of a journey into the truth of our hearts. Like what? what do I really long for? Like, what does this desire point to in me? How has it shaped me? How has it shaped what I give myself to? How has it shaped how I receive praise and how I receive criticism? Mm. How is it, how is it shaped the way I judge what I do and don't do? Or how do I judge my work? How do I judge the work of others? Right. There's all sorts of ways we mm. need to kind of recognize this. And then I think there's areas where we need to ask, like, well, what is the weakness here that I need to embrace to seek the power of God? And I think what most people struggle with, particularly when I go after the spiritual gift conversation, as I did a little earlier, yeah, I almost always hear a hyper like <laughs> reactive. It's like, okay, so I'm terrible at math. I should become an accountant, right? <laughs> That's what that means. Right? It's like, right. no, like, but here's the issue, right? In one sense, you'd rather God called you there. So if you're a pastor, you would rather be a terrible rhetorician and be called to, to pastoring. Because every time you step foot in the pulpit, you're going to be doing so with fear and trembling, knowing I, I, I cannot do this on my own. I just don't have what you, you want to be Moses. Yeah. Um, you want to be like, Lord, uh, well, I'll do anything as long as I don't have to speak. You know, <laughs> great. You're my mouthpiece. You know, <laughs> like, what? You know, that's all right. right. Where most of us, I find. And most often I find God calls us into areas where we actually have quite a lot of natural giftings. And there our weakness now becomes resting on our natural strengths and the temptation to wield those for results. Hmm. And I, I don't know. I mean, I've talked to so many people in ministry over the years about this, and I don't know anyone who, who can't stop and recognize very quickly, you know, I've been wielding my strengths in these areas yeah. or I've just known I could, I could preach a sermon that would get a result or yeah. I, you know, and it's interesting because I think one of the things we'll find, and one of the things we find with a lot of these churches that have become very well known for their failures and they're, they're, you know, again, I mean, the, the rise of all of Mars Hill is just in the public consciousness right now. So we think of that, yeah. but it's so interesting to hear that story because you hear, early on how about all the faithfulness about all mm. the kind of accountability and honesty and all these things. And then once things start getting big, yeah, all those things slowly get brushed to the side and suddenly everything gets narrowed around a single person around their gifts, around their ability. And it's like, what has happened is that when they couldn't do it on their own, they were forced to actually rely mm. on, on, on the presence of God. But then when something goes, gets big, very quickly, what is exposed is where our true hope resides. Mm. And for a lot of us, it's we, we hope that we can just do it. And I think the fantasy is that somehow we will reap kingdom fruit out of it. And I think as, as you know, in evangelicalism today, we're just reaping what we've sowed at the 20th century. Yeah. And it's a disaster. I mean, just look around and it's like this place is in shambles and it's we're seeing the, 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 we're reaping the fruit of an entire generation that thought, what if we sowed in the flesh and reaped in the mm. spirit? And it's just folly. Yeah. Okay. So if, if God's power is made perfect in our weakness, how do I then think about or approach my areas where I know I am gifted? 
I mean, we, we, uh, we know that we have a lot of pastor friends who listen to our podcast. We've talked about preaching already. Uh, if, if I'm a gifted preacher, if people say that that is something that's true of me, how do I then think about that in a way that, you know, isn't just power from below? Yeah, well, and this is an area where, again, in 1 Corinthians, what's interesting is preaching is the exact example Paul uses against the super apostles mm-hmm. when he says that there's a form of preaching that undermines the power of mm-hmm. the cross. And that's, I mean, putting power and cross together in a sentence is interesting. I mean, that's something that we always need to feel the weight of because that's a weird claim. Yeah. Right? Now, we as Christians, of course, recognize the cross is powerful. Right, right. But again, the power like, of the electric chair. That's right, has a, has yeah. a, <laughs> That's so right. A different ring to it. This yeah. is a weird pairing of things. And so, again, when we have to think about the nature of the kingdom, what kind of power is powerful preaching? Like when we when we, when we use that term, wow, that was a powerful sermon. Hmm. What do we mean by that? And whatever that means is it needs to maximize the power of the cross. And so, because it's a kingdom sermon, which means that it can't merely be rhetorically impressive. And in fact, I would say there's there's a way where being rhetorically impressive um, actually shadows the cross as it illumines the preacher. Mm. And there's something else we should be illumining. Right? And so, mm. for, for how does the sermon illumine reality and expose someone to their own temptations? Mm. And I think that's that's what Paul does so well, where he is naming people's souls and forcing them to come to grips with their temptations while also kind of leading them to Christ in that. And if a sermon is is a means of grace, it's it's an opportunity to lead someone Christward. Mm. But the temptation, if you're a if you're a gifted rhetorician, the temptation is to lead people to you. And that's, again, where if that's you, the question you have to ask before you preach is, Lord, this is my weakness. My weakness is I know I can do this in myself. I know I, I know how to do it. Like I can. Mm-hmm. Lord, h- how do I do this with you? And I remember, you know, Jamin once was meeting with a pastor. And I think he tells a story in the book. The pastor told him at one point, I realize now that I could, I could train a gifted atheist to do everything I do as a pastor. And that's, you know, one of those horrifying realizations. But I think whatever we do, we have to sit and really consider, like, when I think of what I do, so let's use preaching as an example. When I think Mm -hmm. of my preaching, could I preach the way I preach without God entirely? Mm. And what, what would that mean about what I'm doing? Or is the fact that what I'm doing is done in the spirit before the face of Christ, leading people to Christ, is that so determinative for my act that it wouldn't even make sense otherwise? Yeah. That it truly would be the folly of preaching, the foolishness of preaching, as Paul says. Yeah. I love slash hate that because... <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the, anybody who preaches regularly is familiar with just the the burden of I, I like to say I love to preach, but the prep is just what kills me because the the the, the burden of preparing a sermon in faith mm. and not just I don't know how to handle this, so I'm just going to end with a funny story, yeah, or <laughs> something like that. At, I have to be on. At times, there is part of me that almost is wondering: Am I putting too much stock into? the sermon in the life of the, of the church in the, in the, in its place in the worship service, which isn't to say that it doesn't matter, but is, is there like an idolatry associated with, I am, I'm approaching my preaching in weakness, in faith that God is going to do something. And so I'm just still hoping that it's going to, it's going to do so much more than it really can do in any one, you know, specific sermon. Yeah, I mean, I think that certainly can happen. I mean, I think if we if we kind of recognize the sermon as the whole liturgy, as a way to draw near to Christ, then the sermon plays a, a distinctive role within a liturgy to do that. Mm. But again, what's interesting is that if that's what you really have conceived the sermon to be, you really won't struggle with seeing it as the most important thing. Because you'll recognize drawing near to Christ is the most important thing. And every element does that. 
it, it does it in this unique way. Yeah. I think the real temptation comes in when, when people aren't preaching at all, they're just teaching. Mm-hmm. And they come to think that it is what the church needs most is their teaching rather than Christ. And so now their teaching is not a means of grace at all. It doesn't become leading people to Christ. It becomes wowing people. Mm. And it isn't a mode of shepherding as much as just straight teaching. And of course, teaching is a means of grace in and of itself. We can talk about the means of a teacher. I'm not a teacher, right? I care yeah, about teaching. Yeah. <laughs> but but that isn't the role of the preacher. And, and I think we're really tempted at times to lay that down, which requires quite a lot of shepherding not only individually, but actually in the sermon itself, shepherding people in the presence of Christ, that just takes the hard work of, of navigating not only other people's hearts, but our own temptations mm-hmm. and our own hearts. And I think when we really get get tempted by seeing kind of a grandiosity of a, in the pulpit, it it is more of a focus on our content mm. and trying to maximize our content rather than leading people to Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That makes a lot of sense. I want to ask you kind of, this might be a speculative question, but we've been talking a lot about, not exclusively, but a lot about Paul, what Paul says about power and weakness, you know, uh, Romans 1 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. That verse has always struck me as funny because if you know anything of sort of the personality of Paul that comes out in the new Testament, yeah you don't get the impression that Paul was often ashamed mm. of anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, he has uh well, I won't characterize Paul's personality, but uh, <laughs> how, how do you think that, I mean, certainly what we know of Paul pre-conversion, he was persecuting the church following the way of power from below. How did that flip for him? Yeah, well, that's what's so astonishing about Paul. I mean, as, as um, Dallas Willard told us at one point, which just made me laugh out loud as an academic, he's like, you know, Paul, before his conversion, was the great academic. Like, here's the great scholar. And then he meets Jesus, and then suddenly he's crouched in a basket being lowered out of a wall. <laughs> and I never really thought about that passage that deep, but I just been thinking of Paul like, yep, this is what I do now is they're lowering him out right, of the wall. Right, right, like, yeah. Um, and not like several months later, but like right. later, later that day or the <laughs> next day or something like that. Right. Right? <laughs> totally. I mean, it's like, what has happened to my life? You know, now he's sitting in prisons. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's, you know, Paul, Paul lived a very funny post-conversion life where anytime he had an ambition, it seemed like it was thwarted. Mm. You know, he has good ambition, good, what we'd call good gospel ambition, right? I want to go to Spain to yeah. proclaim the gospel. God's like, I'm going to lock you in Rome. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, you just got, you know, for Paul, it's so interesting how, you know, he, he is setting the course, I think, for a vision of power that oftentimes we miss. And I think, you know, obviously, First Corinthians is key for this, but Philippians as well, that is built entirely around the cross. And I think one of the things that's so fascinating about Paul is I think no one would have been more tempted than Paul, actually, to mm. abandon the power of the cross. Yeah. Because he became a Christian after all that nonsense, post-Pentecost. So it's like, great, the Spirit's here. Let's leave the cross behind. Let's win. You know, mm. it's it's now, you know, this is great. And instead, when Paul is, is kind of theologizing about ethics, it's always cross-based, right? It's cruciform. Yeah. And that's what's so astonishing is the cross for Paul isn't this mere event. The cross is now the very shape of the Christian life. And you see this, I mean, obviously in Philippians 2 and 3, when Paul compares like his resume with Jesus's, right, who emptied Mm -hmm. himself and took the way of the cross, um, where Paul looks at his former accomplishments and achievements and identity in the world and calls it rubbish. This is a vision of power that isn't what, again, what our generation's tempted by. It isn't an embrace of weakness. That's that, that, that loses the realism of the kingdom. It's a vision of what is actually powerful based on what lasts. And, you know, for Paul, one of the things that happens after his conversion for him is that, and he narrates this in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, the difference between, let's say, a Jewish unbeliever compared to a Christian, right? The veil has been removed. 
well, what is the veil in that passage? It's very clear that it's not a veil. It's Moses's veil. How is Moses's veil lying over the law? Moses's veil was veiling that the old things were meant to fade away. They were designed to fade. And that newer, greater things that would never fade have come. And so what's interesting about that is that Paul now weighs things based on how long they last. And that's where suddenly all the kind of worldly forms of power are proven to be weak. Because even if something, let's say you could construct a ministry or a church or something in your own power and it lasts 100 years. Paul's like, that's meaningless. That's just 100 years, nothing. Yeah. Like in eternal realities, what is the weightiest sorts of things? And even faith and hope aren't that weighty because they fade away. Because hmm. only love can continue, right? Faith and hope both dissolve upon sight. Hmm. And so the greatest of these is love. And so Paul weighs things and the things that are eternal are the weightiest things. And that actually ends up determining what is powerful in the kingdom. And it, it just goes against what our eyes see. And that I think for many people, that's the real difficulty is when you run an organization, when you have a ministry, when you're looking to try to attend it, is this meaningful? You simply cannot use your eyes if you're mm. wanting to have faith. You mm. simply can't do it. You, you have to begin weighing things in the spirit. And it's an entirely different system of power. Hmm. One of the things that I noticed as I was reading your book, you didn't set out to write sort of a theoretical treatise on what the Bible says about power. Uh, you and Jamin say pretty early on that you were on a pilgrimage to meet with mentors, people who haven't read the book yet might not know, but you, you, each chapter is, is in some ways a, narrating a mentor that you went to spend time with and, and who has demonstrated the use of power yeah. really well and really humbly. You, you narrate that in such a, a experiential way. I, I don't mean that could be taken the wrong way, but there's a point when you're talking about meeting with John Perkins and you're, you, you describe you're sitting outside on the patio of a hotel and you talk about the water ring that his glass of Coke left on the table. And I was just so um, kind of curious about why, why you wrote the book that way and what that means about how we have to wrestle with the use of power at an experiential level. We, it, we're not simply going to read, you know, a theological account of what Paul says about power in the New Testament and come away with a transformed view of power. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, so when we first, and really it's been about a decade since we started writing the book initially, and we we had it. We felt like we were called to write this book on power. And Jamie and I looked at each other. At this point, we're in our early thirties, going, we shouldn't be writing a book on power. <laughs> like, <laughs> why would we do this? And and all we we knew is that we we knew that we went to seminary to be great, hmm. not necessarily to be holy, and certainly not because we fantasized by sitting at bedside at the hospital praying for people. That, that was certainly never, we wanted to be on stages and we wanted to be impressive. And, and fortunately, praise God, in seminary, we were confronted over and over and over again with Jesus, who just was totally uninterested in our, our grandiose fantasies and kept showing us the kingdom, saying, that doesn't look like that. Yeah. And so we had inclinations and we had a lot of questions. One of the things that became clear to us is if we're actually going to write this book, we have to be the bad guys in it. So that means we have to be very honest because we are tempted towards power, evil power, worldly power. But we also have to do it Christianly, which means we need to find elders in the mm. faith, old people, to quote yeah. the literal term. And we need to sit at their feet and people who've been faithful for decades. And so um, we met met with J.I. Packer. We met with Dallas Willard. We met with John Perkins, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, we met with folks like Marva Dawn, um, James Houston, and, and, you know, these folks, someone like Eugene Peterson, for instance, um, mm -hmm. we went and met, went to his cabin in uh, Montana and sat with him and peppered him with questions and, you know, ate yeah. food with him and they kind of hung out with him. And, you know, it's some of them, like Eugene had been a bit of a mentor figure to me. We used to write letters back and forth. And, um, and so some of the people we kind of knew, most of them, we just knew from their writings. Mm-hmm. But we knew we needed to not just, because we could, I mean, we were trained well enough where we could have just sat down with scripture and come up sure. with a theology of power. 
Right. But we needed it. We needed it in fleshed in a meaningful way. And in one sense, we needed to know and see today that it actually is a way of power and not merely a way of weakness that begets more weakness. Mm. Because that's that's what, you know, Jamin and I both grew up in the megachurches where everything was big and powerful and exciting. And and there was still a question in our minds a little bit. It's like, yeah, I know Jesus said, like we'd become convinced by the text. Yes, this is what scripture says. But there was a question mark is, yeah, but will this work? <laughs> I, I know Jesus says this, but, you know, is, is this actually? And again, I think for most people, very few people I meet will say that out loud. But that is exactly the question they have. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I actually meet very few Christians who actually believe those things are true and will work kingdomly, which is precisely why our church works the way it does. And so we wanted to ask our questions that we're, we're really struggling with, that were questions that from our own context, but really questions scripture raised for us. It was just us coming to contact with Jesus being like, so what does this mean? You know, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> how do I understand yeah. this? And, you know, sitting with John Perkins was really meaningful because this was before any of the Black Lives Matter stuff. This was years ago. Right. So this is, you know, it was it was fascinating sitting with him. It was a very different cultural moment than it is now and kind of recognizing what he had faced, um, you know, to be beaten into the inch of his life for nonviolent mm. resistance. Yeah. And how how in the world nonviolence begets violence. You know, talking to Eugene Peterson about well, just what happened at his own church, you know, mm. and his how he eventually had to step out of ministry because he wanted to be a pastor and they would no longer allow him to be. And his decision to basically, well, then I have to move on. Um, James Houston, who started Regent in Vancouver, who left Oxford to start a school with a handful of people um, because he thought that was the way of Jesus. You know, like I, I'm mm. going to start and he never meant it to be a seminary. So I'm going to start a little school for average Christians, the mere Christian place kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's like to be at the top of the academy and to choose to do that. <laughs> I, I We just kind of wanted to know, like, is this is this really the way of Jesus's way of power? And and honestly, it. You know, it's funny that you bring up the the coke the, the ring that his coke bottle left on the table. Well, I mean, I remember just, there, that actually. There were so many of those little moments. Mm-hmm. You know, we you talk about you know going to see Jay Packer and, and you know I think you mentioned the name of the coffee shop mm-hmm. that you went to, and there were there were so many of those details that it just struck me that. I don't know. You're, you're narrating uh, a story and a pilgrimage. You're not yeah. talking about. Well, we interviewed these people on the phone, and here's what. Yeah, we totally. From their, you know, vast study. Yeah, we really wanted to bring people with us. Yeah. And so, by narrating our own temptations, we're hoping that people will enter into theirs and then come with us and sit with J.I. Packer in that coffee shop. Yeah. And and some of that, honestly, is because those moments they really became such deeply holy moments for us. I mean, these, mm. I could, I could, I could tell you the smells of these places. I could say like, yeah. these are these vibrant moments where we're sitting with sages in the way of Jesus, who are honestly the most powerful human beings I've ever met. I mean, I'm sitting in their mm. presence was astonishing and mm. sharing even a small amount of life with them. You could tell like these were weighty souls. Yeah. Um, I mean, James Houston could be the, the most brilliant human being I've ever met. And mm. And yet he's virtually unknown today. Yeah. And that's interesting, right? Um, yeah. Our conferences aren't asking him to be there, but hmm. the, they're asking a lot of younger people with the fastest growing church to be there, right? I mean, when you look at just what we value, you can see just so clearly how we've just, in many ways, truly have abandoned Jesus's way of power and just don't buy it. We just don't believe it'll work. Yeah. And I think we're all tempted in different forms, different ways of that. I mean, there's different theological systems that are tempted by this in different ways, different church contexts that are are affected by this in different ways. And there's there's a lot of reduction around this issue that really worries me. Um, You know, one way I see this appear, I know you guys have a lot of PCA folks. I mean, the one one of the ways Mm -hmm. I see this appear is a kind of reductive Kuyperianism where we don't have to worry about these things as long as we do them well. Mm. It's a kind of hipster Kuyperianism, I like to think of it, where (laughs) as long as the coffee's artisan, it's for the glory of God, right? (laughs) And there's this hyper-simplistic vision of 
quote unquote culture making yeah. that neglects the powers and the principalities and, and the call to stand against and to bear witness mm. against the ways of the world, the flesh and the devil that could actually be ways of furthering the world, the flesh and the devil. Mm. Um, and so it's these sorts of things that, that, that I can pretty consistently see going on where as long as it kind of works, then we just assume it must be good. Yeah. Well, and the question of will this work or as long as it works sort of begs the question of what do we mean by work? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, totally. And in the kingdom, yeah. How do we judge these things? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting when you, when you get into the judgment of, of kingdomly sorts of things and even discernment. I mean, assuming the church, assuming the, you know, scriptures are right about what the church will be like, our churches should be set up assuming that wolves are always trying to sneak in. Mm. I know very few churches that are, that are ready for that. Mm. Um, James, the entire book of James basically is a, is a meditation on how evil people are first known by their speech. Mm. Okay. Well, what does someone's Twitter profile tell them, tell you about their fittingness for ministry, for instance, that, that, that would be a very obvious place to go in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, and yet bearing false witness is already, I mean, people just readily do that online as if it's not a problem anymore. I mean, it's, it's interesting when scripture warns us about these things. I, I just don't think we're taking seriously the kind of battle we're in. Hmm. So there's a question I'm, in the back of my mind I'm trying to formulate. There's a sense in which we only learn some of these lessons through our own failure. None of us comes out of the womb perfectly formed understanding that God's power is going to be made perfect in our weakness. And I wonder what that implies about A, who we listen to, and B, about the nature of forgiveness. Maybe the question is sort of where we draw the line. I mean, you, you talk, I think you talked about Jonathan Edwards and I mean, I know you're an Edwards scholar, but I mean, Jonathan yeah. Edwards is having a moment, yeah. not a great one on Twitter right now over his, you know, the fact that he was yeah. a slaveholder. But I mean, there's there's so many examples we could pull out. Uh, Martin Luther and anti-Semitism. I mean, even um, Martin Luther mm. King. Yeah. And it's, I, I don't know how it's been alleged that he had multiple affairs. And so many people that we've, you know, held up as, as wonderful examples of a Christian use of power still have these kind of dark stains yeah. and yet God uses them. And I mean, how do we think about that? I mean, there, there's a sense in which if God doesn't use, you know, if he doesn't draw straight lines with crooked sticks, then none of us is going to be of any use in the kingdom. And yet certainly there's, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, th th there's a place where we have to say, okay, we can't, we can't endorse this person or we can't follow in their example at this point. Totally. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's a profoundly hard question. You know, I mean, for the for the listeners that may not know the story of the book, so the the second edition came out because one of the one of the people we did interview yeah. for the first edition, Jean Vanier, turned out to be yeah. a serial sexual abuser of women, and so we found out immediately asked our publisher to take our book out of print, and the second edition now is us navigating that, like, and part of the question for us was how do we navigate when someone that you revere, I mean, to this day, I think his, his book community and growth is the greatest thing mm -hmm. ever published on community. It just is. And yet I've got to deal with the fact that this man had profound darkness, profound evil within him. And he was an abuser and we were absolutely devastated by this. Actually the conference, when we met, we found out the evening, the conference ended and I finished the conference with a talk on how to, how to discern wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, which was a bitter irony for me to find out that evening. Okay, it's ironic <laughs> that you. That, well, I, coincidental maybe because I, I, th I remember quoting something he said, like the week before mm. it came out, and it probably means that you said something at the conference, and I quoted it in my sermon that week. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it was like right then. It was crazy the the timing of it, and you know he. Yeah, it's so hard to know, like, because because right away, 
women actually came to his defense. I remember a woman online said, whoa, 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 we can't cancel Vanya. We got to keep in. And I remember the time going, no, this is not what we do right now. <laughs> like yeah. there's abused women out there that need us to say, no, this is not okay. And we have to think about them, not his legacy, whatever that is. It is hard. I mean, there is a, a I, I think of the Donatist controversy where, you know, my pastor lost their faith. Yeah. Does my baptism count? Kind yeah. of, kind of. Like if we think about it in those terms, you know, there is. There's in one, in one sense we need to be careful not to, because there is a sense where these people's influence on us can feel tainted, and we need to just know the Lord can use and work in and through people that it isn't their fruit. Right, the Lord can kind of bear His own fruit in through evil in that regard. There are just sinners like we all are that have broken and ministries and failures to them. And that just is what it is. I, I think the difficulty we have to name is that scripture seems pretty clear that at least in our own cultural moment, I think it actually gets harder with historical figures, but in our own cultural moment, we should be able to tell the difference between a wolf and a sheep. I mean, I've even had people push us on this. And it's so interesting when you hear, you know, like, I, I I'm keep referencing the Mars Hills thing, but you know, I was listening to that recently and heard the yeah. Joshua Harris and he's, he, he couldn't tell the difference between a celebrity and Jesus. And it's like, no, like celebrity isn't just like being known by people. Like there's something else going mm -hmm. on. Or, or I know other people who, who criticized us that said, Oh, you guys go after gurus. And then you went and interviewed a bunch of them. It's like, no, an elder is not the same thing as a right. guru. Yeah. Right. But there's something that we've just lost the kind of biblical logic of wisdom mm -hmm. and of elderliness. And so in one sense, I think we need to recover very clearly. You know, no, there, there, there are people who've actually shown us they're unfit to be seen as wise. They're unfit to be seen mm -hmm. as teachers of the church. And that isn't just heresy. I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, again, selfish ambition and jealousy it isn't like a, you know, like heresy, right? Like there's there's much more kind of nuance to these things than we tend to pay attention to, and someone's selfish ambition can actually make them unfitting to teach the church. And I think you know one of the one of the hardest things I think we need to grapple with in the age of social media is if you have a social media account, you have have claimed you are a teacher. Like if you're using that to teach, you've accepted the mantle of a teacher. And that means you are susceptible to be named a false teacher, right? And, and I think if you're giving false information or you're bearing false witness, you're actually kind of bearing witness to the truth that you aren't interested in being a teacher in the presence of Christ, but you are interested in power and strength for control and wielding a platform mm -hmm. to get whatever you desire, right? And so we need to kind of weigh these things out. I, I think with the tradition, we we need to kind of name evil as evil. I, I worry about kind of casting, you know, doubt on one's entire work. I, I, it's certainly not my role to claim whether they're sure. saved or sure. not, or how God yeah. judges them or not. You know, um, I'm going to weigh the, the theology in a different sort of way. Um, not that it shouldn't come up. I mean, there's, you know, if, if someone was kind of profoundly immoral uh, in standards of their own day, even, what are we doing reading them, right? Like that, um, if it's in standards of our day, that's yeah. a slightly different question, even though we're probably right about that. You know, I, I, I worry that there's a certain naivete that that we then kind of wield and a kind of arrogance that we can wield against folks like that. But it does, you know, we could read anyone, right? So the question of who do we read and why is an important one. And who are the true elders that we should be sitting mm. most with? are the people that I think we look at their lives and say, yeah, no, this is clearly just a faithful witness to Christ in their age. And we need to kind of constantly hold those things open. Okay. So from, from um, the wisdom of elders, let's go in a, in a different direction to culturally power has kind of become a, a much more prominent concept in the last couple of years, probably even more so than when you first began the, the the project of the book. Yeah. You know, we all sort of know in the last 18 months, critical race theory has gone from something nobody's ever heard of to something everybody's an expert on. 
and, and, and you know, and, uh, yeah, yeah. I understand that as an academic theory, critical race theory is more than just this, but popularly it's often an attempt to reduce all human interactions to power dynamics and then sort of turn them on their head and subvert them. And it yeah. seems like the Christian view of power is not so much about, you know, the, the last shall be first and the first shall be last doesn't mean we turn power dynamics on their heads, right? <laughs> so mm-hmm. how might the church model a way through our culture's own confusion over power in this kind of cultural moment that we're living through? Yeah, I mean, I think the problem, I mean, you know, again, taking the kind of reductionistic version of CRT that we see in culture, the problem is it's always a zero-sum game. And it assumes power as such is bad. It assumes that we somehow have to kind of, um, you're either all wicked or all good, right? Like, it's just really harsh kind of zero-sum game. Whereas in scripture, I think what we find is that people have been warped by sin. Institutions have been warped by sin. That the powers and the principalities are at work in the world to warp these things. But that doesn't mean goodness as such is eradicated from them. And, and But it does mean that we have to imbibe by a different power system. And the power system of Jesus is a power system that... Um, makes love of neighbor primary and it makes care of others primary. And what worries me is that in evangelicalism, our response to things like CRT is to double down on demonic power as power for control and safety so that we can have what is ours. And I think, you know, CRT might be, you know, nuts, but what it's done is it's exposed how how deep the demonic has infiltrated the church on the Christian right. And I think we're in the cultural moment we're in right now is I, I think we're actually we you know, this is a weird to say, but I think we have front row seats to God's judgment. Like we are just seeing what happens when God decides to judge his people in his church and to show it for what it is. And to give them what they want and to watch them destroy themselves, grasping for what is worldly rather than the cross. And I think, you know, I mean, I'm in the middle of preaching through Isaiah right now. And it's like you read the prophets and you're going, well, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. Mean, yeah, God, it's yeah, not like he yeah, warned yeah. us about this. I'm getting ready to preach on Nehemiah 3 this weekend and they're, they're rebuilding the wall. And Nehemiah 3, there are, there are over 50 people, individuals. Uh, or people groups named who rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. And it's just this incredible statement of the people of God coming and setting their differences aside and doing this together. And it just kind of struck me. I mean, I'm preaching through Nehemiah because after this last year and a half of chaos, it's like, okay, (laughs) what does it look like for the church, the people of God to come back together and rebuild? And it just struck me that, that statement of unity is so far from what we're experiencing that maybe we're still in the demolition stage. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, and, but I do think, you know, how do we respond then as the church, you know, we bear witness against the powers and the principalities and for that today to embrace reconciliation, to embrace love of neighbor, to embrace care of others, all of these things are bearing witness against the evil in the mm. church itself, right? And this is where, you know, the, the phrase we coined in the book was non-divisive yeah. resistance. Like as Christians, we resist non-divisively so that the powers and the principalities are made known and people see the evil that has infiltrated the church. And I, I, I worry that too many of us haven't counted the cost of being a Christian in an evil age when, when we're going to see what we're going to see. Like, I worry that we're just haven't kind of girded our loins for, for the kind of reality we're going to be confronted with, but we're going to be confronted with being attacked by the demonic Mm -hmm. from within the confines of the church itself. And that should be so much more disconcerting to us than what the world is up to without Jesus than the fact that in Christ's church, this evil has infiltrated. Let me um, 
close with with one uh, final question here. One of the things that we've discovered, we've been doing the podcast for about 18 months now, and that there's kind of two distinct groups that we think are listening. One is just uh, other pastors. Another group is, I would say, people who have um, been hurt by the church and are trying to figure out how to how to hold on to the church in spite of some of the church's, you know, sins. <laughs> For, and uh, yeah, so yeah. what might you say to somebody in that, in that category? Because often what, what they've seen, they've, they've been somebody who's experienced the abuse of power in the church, or they've been witness to it. And, and they're trying to yeah. hold on. They're trying to say, I really believe in Jesus. I'm just not sure how I can still have hope for his people. Yeah. Well, in many ways, you know, we are writing from that context. You know, my, the first two pastors I had, including the pastor, my whole family became Christians through lost their ministry because of their sin, sexual sin and abusive power sin. Um, and, and so in, in many ways, I mean, and then, then, then Vanier, right. So my whole narrative is one of people I was looking to for guidance who kind of abandoned the way and along doing this book, you know, one of the things that struck me is that we, we need to name evil in the church. We're called to name evil in the church, but we're also little Hoseas mm. that love the church, not because mm-hmm. of her intrinsic beauty, but because she, because mm. Christ has claimed her. And there is, you know, there, we need people kind of pointing out, yeah, but, this is a prostitute, <laughs> like, you know, and, and for some of us, that's easier than others. Um, and for some of us, it's too easy. Like we kind of relish in naming evil in the church and we have to do some serious mm. soul searching about that. I find though much more often people really hesitate to name evil in the church because it feels faithless to them, but that's not, that's not the kind of thing this is, right? The church isn't mm. sanctified in her goodness, right? It's, 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 we are, we are sanctified precisely yeah. when we are justified in our sinfulness. And so we we need to find hope, not in human institutions and in human ability and in human savvy, but in Christ's faithfulness. And as little Hoseas who, who trust that this institution will be powerful precisely in its weakness and precisely in its faithfulness, um, that that is where our hope resides. And so... It's, it's not necessarily an easy call to be a little Hosea's or to bear witness, you know, these sorts of things we're, we're asking you to do. But at the same time, I think there's deep meaning in it because we can truly have hope still in the state of the church just because of whose it is. Amen. Thanks so much, Kyle, for your time and for your, uh, your wisdom. So good being with you, Bryce. Thanks, man. Man, it's so good to talk with Kyle. He is a guy that I think just sort of oozes wisdom and humility. And I I think you can tell from listening to our conversation that he's not only wrestled with scripture on the topic of power, but God is actually pressing the truth of his word into Kyle's life. I really appreciated this conversation. So Brad, um, you were in the early days of paternity leave when Kyle and I had that conversation, welcoming your second son into the world. So you weren't able to join us, but it's been a couple weeks now and we're sitting down again. So what just changed for you as you listened back to that conversation? Well, besides uh, knowing now that I never want to miss an interview again, um, <laughs> <laughs> for sure confirmed. Uh, no, that was, I was awesome to hear that. And man, I've got thoughts, um, the, which is the dangerous part of recording this after the fact. Here's what hit me. What I appreciate about Kyle is his his willingness to push against some of the most dearly held convictions uh, and beliefs around our tribe in particular. And um, besides taking very personally the uh, comment about, what was it, hipster transformationism? Hipster Kyperianism, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hipster Kyperianism. I'm just like, you say that like it's a bad thing. But no, <laughs> uh, <laughs> besides that, here's here's my takeaway. I was listening to the Mike Mark Sayers uh, Rebuilders podcast the other day, and he was talking about the uh, this movement we're making from individualism to interconnectivity. And he talked about a lot about stuff, but when he was talking about interconnectivity and how we're 
we are going to be moving toward a season and an age where we are far more aware of how interconnected we are and all of the things we're used to kind of running smoothly in the background, i.e., you know, prime shipping and, you know, prime two-day shipping and being able to order a washer or dryer from, you know, wherever and it be there within a week. Like that is being challenged by these supply chains. And what hit me with Kyle's, um, your interview with him is that, Everything has been running smoothly in the background because we have built a supply chain. And now, like, you can use this analogy spiritually, too, to have, like, 110% efficiency, zero margin. Like, our lives Hmm. don't have room to flex. Uh, We are, like, trying to squeeze every last drop and every last minute, every last second out of it. And our desire and need to take a picture of something is getting in the way of us actually experiencing it. You know, like there's just so many places that this, like, I just see this everywhere now in, in my own head. So that's related in this way, even though there were some aspects of what I felt like were, was really pushing back on some of my reasons why I'm a Presbyterian, for, for example, it really did strike me how there is no way we can move away from that hyper-efficiency without a posture towards power that Kyle was articulating. Hmm. That there has, the only way we can introduce margin and actually rest and and make space for flexing with a culture and an environment that is, change is just going to be the norm now. The only way that's possible is if we can practice weakness and meekness before Christ and trust that he is going to accomplish what he wills without us Hmm. or without our squeezing every drop of efficiency out of our lives. And so that, you know, I think Alan Noble calls it the hyper optimization. That is man, that feels very, I did not expect that aspect of like life to get connected to power for me. Mm, So that was really helpful. That's fascinating. What changed for you? So I was just struck in talking with Kyle I was struck by the reality that kind of the the line between use of power from below and power from above doesn't run kind of between the church and the world, but it, it's actually, we are complicit in the problem here. Mm. And, and I think we've talked so much about the pandemic and how it's affected everything. And, you know, our sort of central thesis in starting the podcast has been, it really didn't change everything, despite the name, everything just changed, right? But it sort of brought to the surface what, what yeah. was latent there. Kyle said, what if we're seeing what happens when God judges his church? And that Man. is just, that's what it feels like. And, that, and that's really painful um, to admit. He, he said, we should... Um, we should bear witness against the powers and principalities that all of these things that are sort of happening in our cultural moment are bearing witness against the evil in the church mm. itself. And so I, I guess my takeaway is, gosh, if, if, if our response is not repentance, then I don't think we're really listening. Um, I don't think mm. we're really hearing how deeply the worldly approach to power has infiltrated um, our own thinking and our own camp. You know, I guess, I guess praise Jesus that he knows what he's doing Yeah. because if, if that is what's happening, I think it is, then we do need the discipline of God. Well, man, I, I keep thinking about what we talked about in one of the intro episodes for this series of how much the church is anemic in its discipleship around this topic of power. Mm. And what you just said makes me want to ask the question, is the reason for that because we don't want to? Yeah. Like, is it is it because we actually like the world's way of doing, of, of power? Yeah. Well, or I think as Kyle said, I like, I almost wonder if, if, <laughs> if it's more that like, we are so, like when we put our trust in Jesus, that doesn't set us free from the world's system of power, which is based on, on self, right? Like we don't instantly get set free from that. And so do we actually like take Jesus seriously when he says what he says? Man, 
Yeah. Okay. Well, that's what has just changed for us. We would love to hear what changed for you too. And so we have started a Facebook group to connect with you. Search for Everything Just Changed on Facebook. It's also linked in the show notes and join our group. We do believe it is at least theoretically possible to conduct a healthy, charitable conversation on social media. So would you join us in that experiment? It would be a lot of fun. Let us know what changed for you as a result of this conversation. Kyle Strobel teaches spiritual theology at Talbot's Institute for Spiritual Formation at Biola University. He's the author of The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. Kyle mentioned that the best place to get a copy of that book is at wayofthedragonbook.com. It's the second edition, like he talks about in the interview. And Amazon has been fulfilling orders with the first edition. So go to wayofthedragonbook.com to get a copy of Kyle and Jamin's book. Thanks so much for joining us today. I am Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. Our theme music was recorded by Danny Rankin. Nathan Michelle edits our podcast. We will be back next week helping you navigate life in a crazy world on Everything Just Changed. Everything Just Changed.